Homeland Security is not the only department dealing with an ongoing border crisis. Health and Human Services has a big job, too. Its Office of Refugee Resettlement has struggled with the task of making sure unaccompanied children are properly taken care of. It's got a mixed record. Federal News Network's Tom Temin got more from HHS Assistant Regional Inspector General Nancy Bibb. So tell us, just to start with, the Office of Refugee Resettlement. Where does it live in HHS and what is it supposed to be doing? That's a really good question. So the Office of Refugee Resettlement is a program office that is within the administration for children and families within HHS. And it manages a variety of different programs. So I can provide you a little bit more background on the Office of Refugee Resettlement as it pertains to the Unaccompanied Children's Program, which is what ties to our audit report. Sure. So they they make sure that these children that come by whatever means, they get them settled in places that are safe? Yes. In the Unaccompanied Children's Program, ORR is responsible for the care and the placement of unaccompanied children that have no lawful immigration status in the United States. And what do they specifically do? How do the children come into the custody of that office in the first place? And then what do they do when they do get custody of these children? So children are typically referred to ORR's care from the Department of Homeland Security. And once the children are referred to ORR's care, and ORR, I'm referring to the Office of Refugee Resettlement, they actually fund residential care providers that are providing the temporary housing and other services to unaccompanied children that are within their custody. So these care providers provide a variety of different services, including health care, socialization, recreation, mental health services, to name a few. And so these children remain in ORs care and custody until they are released to a parent or other sponsor within the United States. Some children may also choose to be repatriated to their home country. Um, They may obtain legal status in the United States or turn 18 years old, which at that point in time, they're transferred back to the custody of DHS. The Office of Refugee Resettlement and Accompanied Children's Program primarily has responsibility for the care of these children as long as they're within their custody. And safe to say they have experienced a surge in the number of children they have to deal with? There have been periods in time where there have been surges of children that are referred to their care, yes. All right. So what were you looking for in doing this audit of their operations then? What were you trying to find out here? So our audit examined whether or not ORR was following its policies and procedures and guidance, both when making initial placement decisions for unaccompanied children and also when transferring children between those their care provider facilities. Additionally, as a part of this audit, we determined whether or not ORR was conducting adequate oversight of the transfers of unaccompanied children. So just to provide a little bit more context in regards to what an initial placement is, that is when ORR intake staff determines the appropriate care provider facility to provide the care for the child in a least restrictive setting that's going to meet the child's needs when they are referred from the Department of Homeland Security into ORR's care. And when we're talking about these subsequent transfer placements, We're talking about transfers and when a child is moved between one ORR care provider facility and another ORR care provider facility. 
Got it. And they do have statutory limits on how long they can take to do this, and there are statutory requirements for the paperwork and documentation that goes along with all of these transfers, correct? There are some statutory requirements tied to time limits between transferring care between Department of Homeland Security and ORR custody. And then ORR has their policy guide and internal policies and procedures that give guidance on the transfer process between care provider facilities. And those guidance and policy documents are what we used in conducting our audit. And what did you find? So we had a variety of different findings in our related to our audit. First, I'll address the findings that we had related to initial placements. And so in our review, just a little bit of background, we did a statistical sample of 70 initial placements mm-hmm. and looked at whether or not OR made an appropriate decision for the care provider facility for that child to be placed in. And in that, we found that OR did make appropriate placement decisions. However, those initial placement decisions did not always happen within 24 hours during influx periods. And so that 24 hours is an ORR policy guidance. The the intakes team is required to make that placement decision within 24 hours. Sure, so that means that children are waiting around somewhere where it's not optimal for them until this placement takes place. And 24 hours, that's a long time. Some of these children are very young, right? Some of the children placed into ORR's custody are very young, yes. All right. We're speaking with Nancy Bibb. She's Assistant Regional Inspector General for Health and Human Services. And you also found that sometimes the paperwork and documentation of what was going on wasn't quite up to snuff also. Yes, you're correct. We found, we did a little bit of looking at initial placements for children that had specific concerns or needs. So they went into a restrictive placement. And a restrictive placement is a care provider that just has a little bit more, has a different set of guidelines rather than the basic shelter environment. And so we did find that the intakes placement checklist was not always completed accurately. And according to ORR, the issues that we found within initial placements were one tied to, you know, the number of referrals varying greatly between normal operations and during an influx and capacity issues at the care provider facilities, just having enough space. And in but what about the, having enough staff? Yes. Additionally, we found that the ORR contracted intake specialist positions were not always fully staffed during our audit period. And these are the individuals that are actually making that placement decision to determine which care provider facility a child would be placed in. All right. So they have issues, space and staff and dealing with surges. What were your recommendations? So, in regards to that issue, our recommendation was for ORR to strengthen the oversight of their initial placements and ensure that that placement decision is made within 24 hours of each referral. And we also recommended that ORR ensure that the documentation is completed for those children with special needs or concerns. And HHS and the ORR pretty much accepted those recommendations? ORR and the Administration for Children and Families did concur with our recommendations in our report and in their response provided us with some corrective actions that they plan to take. And in the meantime, they have hired more intake specialists, correct? 
I cannot speak to whether or not they have hired any additional intake specialist at this point in time. We have not gone back and reassessed that. Okay. I'm just reading in the report. They said they did. They told you they did, but you have to verify that, in other words. Yes. As part of our audit follow-up procedures, ACF will provide us with a final management determination, and we will then look to determine whether or not we feel that the recommendations were implemented from the report, and we'll look at those corrective actions at that point in time. Hello, and welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. Today, I'm thrilled to be joined by Dr. David Wilson, president of Morgan State University. David has had a fascinating career and has garnered a long record of accomplishments from more than 30 years of experience in higher education administration. Came to Morgan State in 2010 from the University of Wisconsin, where he was chancellor of both the University of Wisconsin Colleges and the University of Wisconsin Extension. Before that, he held numerous other administrative posts in academia, including vice president for the University of Outreach, associate provost at Auburn University, and um, associate provost of Rutgers. And when we were talking earlier, too, you had just mentioned that you had a, um, a wonderful nomination at the American Academy of Arts and Sciences. And David, thank you so much for joining me. Uh, Shane, it is indeed a pleasure uh, to be invited into this conversation with you. It's not in your um, in the short bio here, but I also know you served in some capacity in the Obama administration. Yes, I did. As a matter of fact, as I was leaving the University of Wisconsin, where I oversaw the UW colleges, I accepted the presidency at Morgan. And on my way into the presidency at Morgan in 2010, my name was advanced to President Obama to be considered as a member of his board of advisors on historically black colleges and universities. And so I accepted and served there for eight years during his two terms. Amazing. You've had a fascinating career at numerous universities across the U.S. How did you become passionate about the education field? And what are some of the biggest lessons that you've learned? First of all, I was made aware of a quote by Horace Mann, who was great 19th century educator who really gave rise to public education in the United States. And he was the first to utter the phrase that education is the great equalizer. And why that resonated with me was because I grew up in abject poverty uh, in rural Alabama, and there was no law in Alabama as I was growing up that required black kids to go to school. I was kind of shut off from formal education on a consistent basis. I didn't get a chance to go to school full time until I was in the seventh grade. We lived on property there that were owned by um, the white landowners. And so the um, owner of the property, a white woman, would bring down to this little shanty that we lived in. And she would bring Look and Life magazines. My mom, uh, she would make us as children plaster these pages of Look and Life magazines against the wall of this little shanty to keep the cold wind out. I would take a kerosene lamp and go around the walls reading those articles in Look and Life magazines, which is when I first came across the phrase of Horace Mann. Hmm. From that point on, I committed myself you know, to education. It's an amazing story, and two things occur to me. One, it's almost incomprehensible that this happened during our lifetime. You know, that to me is uh, almost shocking. It's also truly inspiring that you recognized that you could do more 
and sought out to do that and were successful at it. So when you think back on that experience, how has that informed, shaped, influenced your leadership position now as president of Morgan State? It, it had to have had an impact, but how would you articulate that? So if you go back to that Alabama environment, what I saw, it was just so many people, my own brothers and sisters who were 10 times smarter than I was. But my first five brothers were literate. They never got an opportunity to show the nation how brilliant they were. Therefore, I really took on this whole notion that my life had to be about ensuring that individuals who were drowning in potential and they didn't realize it would be in a position where they would realize it. I was never ever about positions that would enable me simply to replicate privilege. I don't care where you went to school. I don't care what type of family you came from. I think that's where sometimes we kind of get education wrong. Uh, we have institutions that want to define themselves based on how many students they don't admit. I'm about just the opposite, taking individuals who are absolutely stellar and don't realize it and bringing that into existence for them. You've had so many opportunities that you could do other things perhaps at um, larger organizations, but you're where you wanna be on purpose, by design, for the kinds of reasons you just talked about, that it's, it's fulfilling. But can you talk a little bit more about that? There have been so many so-called top 50 institutions in the United States that have come aggressively after me. And you know, I flirted with a couple of them, and I went home to Alabama because these two were very serious. And my family is brutally honest with me, and they keep me grounded. So I flew down and began to talk with them about these institutions that were coming after me, I was thinking they would be impressed. And when I finished, my youngest sister said to me, now, are you finished? Clearly, we are not understanding why you would even consider leaving Morgan. It just reassured me uh, that I'm living my purpose at Morgan. And it is joyful uh, to be at a place where you want to be versus being at a place where others think you should be. One question that I always have to ask, is there one leader or maybe a couple of leaders that have inspired you, that have, you mentioned Horace Mann, I don't know if, if that fits in this category, but what might be a couple of leaders that you remember that, that inspired you, that gave you a purpose, helped shape your life? In 1989, when I was selected as a W.K. Kellogg Fellow, we had to be introduced to leadership that was different in a lot of ways than the leadership that we had been exposed to. In February of 1990, uh, Mr. Nelson Mandela was released, and that's where I wanted to go and meet Mr. Mandela. We had no idea that he would grant an audience, and he did. He granted an wow. audience, and uh, Mr. Walter Sasulu did as well. So here I am, having grown up in Alabama, I harbored some anger toward the society there that kept me from realizing my potential and then kept so many others like me from ever realizing their potential. At the end of a conversation that we had, someone asked Mr. Sasulu, we're leaving this conversation thinking that you harbor no anger. 
support the society that locked you away for 27 years. Are we leaving with the correct conclusion? He said, I harbored no anger or bitterness toward the society that locked me away for all of those years because I and others like me knew that what we were doing was the right thing. If you commit yourself to doing the right thing, there should never ever be any space in your heart for anger or bitterness. And that was transformational for me and why I respect and admire Mr. Nelson Mandela and Mr. Walter Sisulu today. That is a great story. And it, you know, with all the accomplishments through your life, I'm sure it had a great impact on your ability to, to go as far as you have and you're still going. Well, uh, I, I have a takeaway in, in terms of leadership lessons I've learned. We would be well served as a nation if I think we created these opportunities for young people at various stages to really, first of all, see the United States. And then we need that same opportunity globally. As a result, when you do that, you understand the history over here, you understand the culture over here, you understand, and you got to understand the world beyond an intellectual understanding. You want to think of your maturation in a way where your brain can never, ever, ever be hacked. <laughs> so that's sort of the way, that's sort of the I way that I kind of see all of that. That's you know? brilliant. <laughs> And um, being born in rural Southwest uh, Kansas, flyover country, as they say, I can I can tell you that your your comments about travel and getting out, not just reading about it, but actually traveling, it, it really is important. It's absolutely critical for someone's personal development. I I, I happen to think so. Well, Doctor <laughs> David Wilson, thank you so much. I love every single piece of today, but also your life story. It's really impressive, inspiring, and thank you for sharing it. Shane, thank you very much for inviting me to have this conversation with you again. And I'm Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. We'll see you next time on the Lessons in Leadership podcast.